that's what we've been seeing more around here on the front lines as opposed to dedicated, you know, close air support craft. But we know they're somewhere in the area. And we also know that there's at least a couple S-400 systems and certainly some S-300 systems that maybe haven't launched their rockets into civilian buildings that are in the area. So it's it's a complex air picture because if Ukraine was actually able to fly all the way to basically the Dnipro River, fire a missile into one of the more protected Russian locations and skedaddle with a more modern, more capable aircraft on its tail and get away from it, doesn't paint a pretty picture for Russian air defenses in that area. So that might be part of the reason why they're holding off right now. Just just as an aside, uh, the Su-25, uh, the Frogfoot, is the A-10's contemporary. And uh, you, you, you see the Ukrainians operating them, and they'll fly that thing in the ditch, and they're, like, literally looking up at the traffic on the road above them. Yeah, I mean, uh, to be, I'm going to attract a lot of hate here before I sign for the night. It's a better version of an A-10. It's more armored, and it fires more missiles, which is really what the A-10 has been used for. Um, and they still get shot down all the time. So, because that was another thing about why don't we send them all these old aircraft that we have? The answer is they'd probably get shot down. Um, if a more armored, faster vehicle it, that the Russians have that frankly has better capabilities um, as far as over the horizon launches is getting shot down by apparently the same guy with his rocket launcher somewhere near Zaporizhia for like the third time, then something that's older and slower and more proprietary that the Ukrainians are not as well-versed in would probably not be the best way to expend their pilot's lives. Yeah, I'll be honest, I, I don't really buy that Zaporizhia story, the, the ghost of Zaporizhia or, or whatever. Um, but at the same time, I do think the fact that they're, you know, they're uh, utilizing these, they're flying nap of the earth, these uh, kind of low altitude flights shows that they, they certainly are afraid of the, uh, the man pads and the, uh, the air defense systems in the area. Well, that's that's just SOP for these guys. Like, if uh, if you're close air support, you're uh, you're you're down in the ditch. You're you're in the weeds, man. And uh, that's that's where these guys live. They're good at it. And it's it, it yeah. You know what? It it takes it takes like air defense systems like the S four hundred S three hundred out of the picture because they they can't get they can't get a lock because they're below the radar. Uh, however, uh, you know Yuri standing there with his man pad. Uh, you know, can still crank off a lucky shot. Well, yeah, and that's what we're. Every time we see these videos, they're they're uh, deploying flares as well. Uh, I guess my overall point is just that you know they they don't have control of the skies and uh, you know nap of the earth. Or Ukrainians are doing it with their helicopters as as well. Um, it it's what you'd expect to see, but at the same time, like neither side has that that air dominance that that one might expect. Uh, Last follow-up question. Um, so, so that mall that was hit in Kramachuk, uh, do do we know if that was a KH twenty-two or KH thirty-two? Um, I believe that was actually a supposed to be a Russian anti-ship missile that was fired at it. Um, so, whichever one of those is their anti-ship missile, that's the one that hit it. Uh, part of the reason, uh, apparently, it was directed at there's an industrial facility nearby. Um, obviously hit them all, uh, but they move incredibly fast to try and defeat uh, U.S. carrier groups and whatnot, which have a lot of defenses against these things. And we've seen them also used in other locations um, just because they do move faster than most of these other air launch missiles, so they're less so uh, vulnerable to interception. But I will 
be completely blunt, I, I don't spend my time memorizing Russian missile names. I just know it's whichever very rapid anti-ship missile they have, that's the one that was used. Thanks, language. Yeah, my, my understanding is that the, the KH-32 is essentially an upgraded KH-22, but um, I think they both have anti-ship application. Uh, but someone who actually follows weapons could probably speak to that more. Uh, yeah, Osint, the uh, Pentagon actually confirmed your question. Um, good point on the variant. I, I'm trying to find it as we speak, but it was definitely a, a kitchen, uh, what NATO calls um, the kitchen. Uh, but um, uh, we can find that for you. Good question on the variant. Uh, the, but the meta question you're asking is significant because what Russia is doing is it's essentially turning its anti-ship missiles into V-2 rockets. I mean, think about it. Back in World War II, when uh, Nazi Germany was launching these you know, poorly guided, dumb cruise missiles, uh, the V-2, they didn't care what they hit. They just wanted to kill civilians and create terror. Uh, when Russia made the decision to transit its uh, anti-ship capabilities into anti-civilian capabilities, that showed many things. One, they're running out of, uh, of precision-guided uh, munitions. And second, they don't care who they kill. This is why uh, it's so abhorrent, uh, Russia's war against Ukraine. And it's why uh, we're here right now in this space. So I don't know who had their hand up next. Um, I know Nightlight's had it up for a while, so in the interest of somebody else, another list, but we could go Nightlight, Vern, and then Herm. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I, I guess I kind of am a weapons nerd, and yeah, the KH-22 is the AS-4 kitchen, uh, which is what the backfire uses. The KH-32 was the AS-6 Kingfish, was a, which was basically a scaled-down kitchen so that their Badger bombers can use it. And since they don't use the Badgers anymore, there's no point in keeping the AS-6s around. Um, I mean, they probably still have them around, because why not? But um, the AS-4 was what was used. I refuse to use the Russian names for these damn things. But, you know, that's basically, it's a 16,000-pound missile. They can only carry two or three of them at a time. And it goes up to about 100,000 feet on a big motor and comes down with a one-ton warhead. It's always had a air to surface ability um it was never all that good but when you have a one-ton warhead you know it doesn't need to be great so especially when you're firing on the regimental level this would be something that you'd use to knock out like keflavik or some norwegian air bases or something like that so it's a it's still a very respectable system and there's nothing else like it i mean it's the size of a freaking buck um Kind of scary. Uh, I, I did have a question for Battle Moose on the you know, Canada and the Leopard 2s. And I was wondering if Germany has a way of vetoing that. Because it seems like they've um, they vetoed a lot of other transfers. And they, I thought they were trying to veto the Spanish transfer of Leopard 2s. I think the Spanish are trying to transfer 10, which are in deep storage. So, you know, I don't know if they can veto that. And another thing, how we're always talking about HIMARS, one capability of the Marine Corps has been playing around with is the naval strike missile out of these launchers. So I don't think it requires any more modification of them in pods. I think you can put two of them in there. And, you know, it's about a 150, 200 kilometer uh, anti-ship missile with a secondary land attack capability. It just has a kind of a smallish warhead. But it's about the same as what uh, Neptune had, which was good enough for Moscow, so I guess it's good enough. So that could be fun at some point in the near future. 
anyway. That, that, that was actually part, part of my point that I forgot to make. Uh, because uh, Val Moose may have had a beer or two there this evening because I'm on vacation right now. Um, the the whole turbine issue. What was the horse trade? Right. We we don't we don't we we gave the turbines back to Germany. Right. Um, what did we get in return? You know, and that that happened at the end of the of the of the G20. Uh, so what? You know, what do we get in return? And that we don't know because <clears throat> we just don't cave in to demands blindly. There's got to be, you know, there's there's a greasing of palms somewhere, right? And if it's, uh, okay, Germany, we'll, we'll let you have these turbines so you can fill up all your stockpiles for winter with gas, uh, with Russian gas. However, you're going to turn the other way when we, when, we and other countries start giving Ukraine your proprietary products. Well, I certainly hope that's true. Leopard 2s, look, they're devastating. I mean, I'd say one Leopard is probably the equivalent of, what, a company of T-62s or T-72s can, you know, take on the 80s and 90s. I wouldn't worry about Armada. They can't, don't seem to be able to get them down a parking lot. But that would be, if they can get those there, just like a couple battalions, I, that would just be devastating. You know, it, that would yeah, I get chills thinking about it. It, it. it would definitely it would definitely change the uh, the 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 battle space. You know, it would definitely change the land picture as as we see it and mm-hmm. uh, tip tip the scale. Like we talk about putting you know putting your finger on the scale and tipping it. This would be just kicking the scale over. Uh, it would go through those T-60s and T-72s like they weren't even there. Yeah, that's that would be pretty great. Um, if we do end up sending M1s, they can use diesel. The Army um, tries to use JP-5 for basically everything for standardization of logistics, but those things will eat anything. So um, it's possible it might have a decrease in performance, but it's still plenty of performance to play with. So I wouldn't worry too much about the fuel issue. It's more of a convenience for the U.S. Army. Because because what is it? It's a it's an LM four hundred. It's basically like the uh, civilianized version of the uh, the F four hundred four, right? That's my that's my understanding. Because um, I know it was originally a helicopter turbine, um, helicopter engine, sort of. And you know, it's still you know, it's still quite useful. The pro- the biggest problem with the darn things is. You know, diesel engines have an idle, and a jet turbine doesn't. It's either on or it's off, and if it's on, it's guzzling gas. And you only get about 250 miles of range, and these things have to be followed around with tanker trucks all the time. If I had, you know, janky logistics, that's not what I would want, even if I could run it on diesel, because something like a, you know, a Leopard with a diesel engine go like 400-plus miles. And, you know, we're still talking like 60, 70-ton tanks here. You know, they're going to eat fuel and parts, but I, I would rather have a Leopard with a diesel considering the situations, but they get by on M1s. Yeah, and the tur- the turbines tend to be a little bit fickle, right? Uh, like um, a, a diesel engine, you can you can drag it through the muck. Like think, think of Grandpa's tractor. You know, as long as you put oil in that thing, change the plugs and whatnot, and uh, the glow plugs and whatnot, that thing will start. Uh, I, I remember uh, my buddies uh, when I was working with the Air Force. They came back from uh, uh, from Desert Storm. 
when Canada deployed the uh, the pack of eight teams to uh, to Dubai, and th- what was happening was the uh, the the CF eighteen, you know, the eighteens got an F four hundred four engine in, and uh, it was ingesting sand, and the sand was uh, basically melting and causing like a glass inside uh, the combustion area of of the turbine. Um, so what they would do is they would run up the engine and they have these bags of uh, walnut shells and they would dump these walnut shells into the intakes because uh, the walnut shells wouldn't uh, thawed out the, uh, the, the compressor blades, uh, but it would break up the, the glass that was forming uh, near, near the fuel injectors and stuff like that. Oh, that's interesting. Well, walnuts are great stuff. Um, I, I think we might underestimate the amount of dust on a battlefield in Europe because I think it'd be pretty comparable to a desert. So again, I, I'd rather have a leopard or a Leclerc or a Challenger. Actually, I think the Leclerc would be a very ideal thing in a ways, but that's just my opinion. Go on. Uh, I don't know if we still have Peter here. Oh, I will not get in the way of this. Dis- uh, go for it, guys. Oh, I, I think we put the uh, the whole tank thing to bed. Maybe we'll go back to some hands here. We got uh, Herm and then Vern. Say that five times fast. Uh, no, I won't. Um, hey, guys, a uh, drum uh, fella here. Um, I have a, actually a question about Enter Air um, uh, later, but uh, first a quick comment on uh, this tank and fuel issue that's coming up several times now. So the Leopard 2, um, that has been designed uh, keeping in mind of some of the lessons the German military learned in World War II. That is, okay, it's great to have uh, really good tanks, but the problem is without fuel, they don't run. And with all the technical maintenance that you have to put in them, they, they're not good. So if you drive a Leopard and full speed and you hit the reverse, that um, gearbox will survive the least once. That's one of the specs that's been designed to. And the other one is if you um, do not have a diesel fuel, you can just use sunflower oil and they do that just fine, at least for one strike at the enemy. And um, I, from hearsay, um, I'm, I've been told that Ukraine has a copious amount of sunflower oil. So there's certain advantages of having that t- piece of kit around um, in certain situations that might be useful, those parameters coming around with a leopard too. And it's a uh, national disgrace that they are not already 200 in Ukraine. Uh, it's, uh, it's don't get me there. So my, my original question was, um, so back in March, um, the German government in, uh, agreed to supply Ukraine with the most complicated piece of kit they have available, which is a Gepard tank. Uh, it's an anti-aircraft tank. It's um, a tracked vehicle uh, sporting um, surface-to-air missiles, I think two or four, I'm not sure, and a twin 35-millimeter autocannon. It comes with a spotting uh, radar and a tracking radar, and um, um, the most of the damage it delivers is from the autocannons, and it's essentially going to uh, reduce the uh, opponent's ability to fly a helicopters in five kilometers of range where Gepard is located. Uh, all of them is, of course, being rendered useless, and they announced that they're going to be, because Ukraine is controlling most of the airspace on the front line already with other means, 
And they announced they're going to supply them in July, which to me indicates they are not going to supply them before July 31st, which is the way that the German government is handling things right now. Uh, however, the question I'm having is something I was looking into on the Internet. I did some research and I really couldn't find the answer to that. So I was hoping to pick uh, you guys' brain on that. Uh, how useful would this Gephardt be in uh, anti-UAV warfare, taking out the drones, the Orden tents, or whatever Iran is throwing into the battlefield right now, and giving in the artillery duel that we are seeing for the last two months, um, the Ukraine upper hand, by taking out the eyes of the Russian um, aggressor? Moose, do you want to talk about uh, the beauty that is the Gepard? Uh, we've we've talked about it before on the space, but I'll defer to you. Uh, unfortunately, I got I got to jump into the host, and when I'm in the host, I can't speak. Okay, uh, so um, the question, if I understand it correctly, is that how useful is the Gepard uh, for killing UAVs? Uh, that would be like using a uh, nuclear weapon to uh, kill a bird. Uh, the Gepard is um, a highly capable platform. Uh, you are correct in everything you say, uh, the way you describe it, all good. Uh, and good for Germany for uh, supplying a few Gepards and uh, a limited amount of ammunition to uh, support them uh, and handing that over to Ukraine. Uh, but I, I don't think UAV killing is uh, the real purpose for the Gepard. Uh, the Gepard is there to control close in air, um, close in airspace. And uh, we've we've had many conversations on the space before about it. Uh, uh, lots of uh, operators sing its praises. And um, I'll leave it there. Moose, let's, um, let's go. To if, if you know something about that, can you uh, do you know um, what is the rate of cross section of the UAV that a Gepard could pick up by itself without relying on other, other radar um, assets? Brilliant question. Uh, no one in this panel right now can answer that question, uh, but my promise to you, uh, I will uh, pose that again when we have some air defense uh, experts in the space. And uh, when you're back, uh, we'll, share the, we'll, sh we'll share the notes. Is that fair? Uh, yeah, cool. Great. Uh, well, just DM me when it happened. I can look it up myself then later based on your DM. Fantastic. And that is why we have this space. Different people bring their expertise. Uh, everyone knows something about something. And uh, we are all using that information and knowledge to help our friends in, in Ukraine defend themselves. Uh, all right, Vern, you're up. Uh, every time you come, uh, you bring a new wild-eyed theory or idea to the space. Sometimes I disagree with you, but uh, let's hear what you have to say, my friend. Vern, you're up. Oh, is that why you kept me waiting so long? Just kidding. Um... Uh, good good afternoon from from sunny Melbourne. Uh, yeah, just so many things to contribute. Um, walnuts also contain an enzyme that uh, eats plaque off your arteries, uh, as well as taking glass off the cylinders of a, uh, a, a an Abrams tank. That's that's a that's very interesting. And also just um, on uh, Gerhard Schroeder in relation to his character, I believe he he successfully sued a German newspaper when he was in office for uh, insinuating that because he dyed his hair, he was untrustworthy. Uh, and anyone who knows <laughs> that when men dye their hair, you know, you My can shit. spot it from... Can you hear me? Oh, we're listening closely to you, Vern. Uh, what's your question, oh. my friend? Let's go. 
No, no, it was just a couple of anecdotes on um, Schroeder. So he successfully sued a German newspaper for in, insinuating that he dyed his hair. And secondly, his his um, nickname was Audi because he'd been married four times. And you'll know that, uh, you know, an Audi has four rings. But he has actually been married now for a fifth time, um, which means I think his nickname now is the Olympic ring. Nice joke. All right, Vern. Uh, uh, what do we all do? All true. That's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Keep up the great work. Fascinating listening to all the technical information and, and expertise. Cheers. Uh, excuse Thank me. You. About the newspaper, that is correct. It uh, evades me which newspaper it was, but uh, I remember he did that back uh, when he was the chancellor. Okay, great. Uh, let's go to Misfit and then Nightlight. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Hold on one second. Uh, Misfit and then BBSZ. Misfit, and you're up now. Thank you. Um, yeah, great discussion uh, tonight. I've been enjoying it, and thanks for uh, jumping in to host, Peter. Uh, I wanted to ask, uh, maybe have some people touch on the current status of Ukraine's air defenses, um, particularly while Germany is being mentioned. Um, when or do we expect the Iris T uh, that has been discussed to be actually in theater, uh, if ever. Uh, that's kind of how I, you know, look at it at this point uh, with anything regarding Germany's promises. But so we have the Iris T uh, just recently where there, there was a discussion about the NASAMs, and it seems like maybe those are in theater now. Um, but along, just to tag on to the end of that is, uh, there was some discussion, I think, earlier today about uh, Greece wanting to unload um, a number of S-300s, and obviously the choice candidate for those would be Ukraine. Um, you know, each time we see one of these cruise missile strikes, uh, I, I'm probably not alone in, in thinking, you know, we just get disheartened and feel powerless. And so, like, what can be done about this stuff? Not only for future Ukrainian counteroffenses, in terms of having air support, um, but defending the civilian population. So I just wanted to see if people could touch on, you know, the status of future, present, uh, and possibilities for increasing Ukraine's air defenses. Language, Moose. Uh, I mean, we don't have an air defender in the space right now, but um, I'll defer to you, uh, Language or Moose. So they have, it's going to take a long time to get that Irish to any other system. Um, we're, even the Ukrainian government has admitted that we're probably looking on the order of months. Um, it, it takes a lot of training for these, um, just frankly, because you can be less than rapid on an artillery gun. You can even be less than speedy in a tank if it's modern enough. But if you're less than perfect with an air defense system, then you might as well not be there at all. And they're in the very, very technical systems. You know, the only thing more technical that's here would be like electronic warfare stuff. And so there's a lot that goes into it. Um, there's a reason these are some of the most prized possessions of NATO countries. And while it may take a while to get those, there's a number of more post-Soviet systems that are in place that have been doing a reasonably decent job of intercepting some of these missiles. Unfortunately, not all of them, um, especially there are certain missiles that move too fast for these to reliably intercept others that get launched from too close. And again, you don't have a lot of time, but um, generally Ukraine's uh, air defenses 
are either things they already had or things they've been trained on, either Soviet or post-Soviet style equipment. Just a quick follow-up uh, language. The, I mean, they, they can't have an endless supply of these S-300 missiles. Um, you know, we know Slo- Slovakia sent a full complement of launchers and, you know, basically a whole S-300 battery or system. Um, but they've been, you know, 3,000 missiles have been launched. Uh, they've been defending their country for, you know, 140-some-odd days now. Um, you know, at some point, they're going to run out of missiles, are they not? I mean, something's going to have to get in place uh, at some point where they're going to risk being at a at a real disadvantage with that, don't you think? Absolutely. There was a good discussion a couple of days ago about who even makes the missiles for the S-300 that is in Russia. And I never got a good answer to it. I don't know who it is. Um, so... There's a finite supply of these, and you're right, uh, especially in air defense capability uh, for these more capable systems, Ukraine does not have uh, the best hand, unfortunately. Um, Russia has a lot more missiles that they can just continue to lob, and if Russia says, hey, we don't care that these missiles are all from the 70s, we're going to throw 100 of them at Kiev, or Kiev, there's not a whole lot that can be done to stop that, which has been an ongoing concern, right, especially after Venezia. So... There's definitely things in the background that are being looked at. Um, you know, some of these systems just take some time to train on. But if and when more NATO-supplied systems arrive that can do these jobs, then at least hopefully the logistics line and the supply line stops becoming as much of an issue. But you're absolutely right that there is a finite supply, especially of things like the S-300, the most capable of these systems that Ukraine can actually fire before they're out. Uh, Nightlight, let's go to you. And uh, again, I would encourage everyone to uh, retweet and share the space. Uh, Raise your hands. We're having a fascinating discussion about Ukrainian military capabilities, geopolitics, geostrategy, economic warfare. Uh, This is the most fun anyone has had on the Internet in the last five minutes. All right. So, uh, Nightlight, you're up. Hey, thank you very much. Um, So we're talking about Iris T. it's fine. It's a it's a short range missile. It's basically I wouldn't say a ground based sidewinder, but it's a ground weight ground based uh, version of a you know short range uh, air to air missile. So it's basically a heat seeking missile, which you know for the twenty to forty square kilometers that it has line of sight over and can pick up a heat signature on, you know it'll kill just about anything dead. Um, I mean, it's a it's a deadly system, but it's not something that's going to defend your city. It's going to defend your HIMARS or, you know, it's going to defend something tactical. You know, I don't think it would be very good against um, much. And my understanding is the Germans are going to get around to sending it eventually, but they're not sending anything out of their stock. They're going to only send new production like right off the factory floor. So, you know, who knows when that gets there? I mean, it, everything I've seen, it's, I'm almost kind of expecting it to show up post-war. Um, Again, good system if you can get it, but I'd rather have a NASAMS, which you can actually get now. And that's taking uh, basically a land-based version of a AIM-120C AMRAM, and that can really reach out and touch them. That's the same system that we use to defend Washington, D.C. here in the U.S. And, you know, that can control, you know, a region. It's a good anti-missile system. In a lot of ways, against missiles, it's um, probably about as good as a Patriot Pack 3 because that's something that... Um, like they'll, I would say quad pack, but they'll put more of the pack threes in a Patriot. And it's used for anti-tactical ballistic missiles. 
on a point target where the pack twos and follow on Savat or Morfer v you know controlling a region. Can I can I ask you uh, to help our audience? Maybe yeah. you could uh, spend a minute or two describing the difference between uh, upper tier, mid tier, and low lower tier air, air defense capabilities. Because oftentimes when we talk about air defense, uh, everyone thinks, oh well, you're defending the air. But uh, maybe you can briefly describe for folks uh, that that difference because it is so important uh, as Ukrainians defend their airspace. Sure. Uh, so long as I get a minute to geek out on the Gephardt as well. But um, go for it, air, man. Go for it. Yeah. Air defense, you know, it starts at like a strategic level. Um, you know, that would be, you know, this is covering like a country kind of level. And that's something like the theater high altitude air defense system. That's something like S400, S500 uh, kind of thing. It covers a big area, but it's it's only useful against targets flying at high altitude. You know, you want to really control a wide range of airspace but you know curvature of europe is still a thing so that's the thing it, it nowadays is more intended to deal with uh ballistic missiles i'm not talking about iskanders iskanders and atacams and tashkas i'm talking about you know big medium range ones or you know something coming over from iran or whatever now that it's particularly great at that but it's there you have the more useful stuff are things like patriot uh, and it's really the only long-range air defense system in all of NATO. You know, the U.S. never bothered developing, not really developing, medium-range and short-range because we had Patriot and we had air superiority. So what else do you need? Um, and that's covering, you know, that can cover a city. You know, that can cover, you know, your division operational area. You know, that can cover a region of the line. And it can, and it can defend, you know, like 100 miles out or so. And it's a really good system. It's operating in a phased array. It's a bunch of batteries. You can tow stuff around fairly rapidly. It's not mobile, but, you know, it's hand. Um, you know, and that, that's really ultimately what you want to get, but it is really complicated. And that's what an S-300 is, really. But S-300, I'm not too afraid of it because, you know, it's ultimately 70s technology. That they're using them in an air-to-ground role really means that it's not that they're desperate. It's actually really nice with that because it, it goes really fast and has a long range. It's about as long range as an Iskander tactical ballistic missile, right? And it's quick, so it's a quick reaction. When you see a target, you shoot a target if they can actually pull that uh, kill chain off. So then you get down to your medium range. So it's just smaller areas, more point, not quite point defense, it's more tactical, you know, but it's to cover you know, like your battalions and that, that kind of region. You know, smaller things, that's what your NASAMs are, your old Hawk missiles, that's what your uh, SA-11 uh, gadflies, the Bucks, uh, are doing. And then you have the short-range stuff, and that's like, you know, that's like ride-along. You know, that's with your with your company or nearby. You know, that's, um, well, that would eventually be things like Iris-T, that would be things like the Stormers. You know, that there's, there's a whole plethora of different, systems that basically do the same thing you know they're covering a tactical unit from you know close air support and helicopters and that kind of thing so there's three different layers it's all part of something called an integrated air defense um, the nice thing is like with nato it's all cooperative engagement it's data links it's handing off data from one thing to the other you know if you see something over there you data link that to the missile launcher over here which doesn't have any data and you can cooperatively engage that. And the Russians can't do that. It's it's incredibly intensive. Um, no one else can really do that. It's beautiful. Um, 
you know, integrated air defense is great. Isn't that the way the, 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 the data interacts with itself? Uh, Nightlife, I was wrong uh, when I said we didn't have an air defender uh, here in the space. Uh, you certainly understand uh, what that picture looks like. Uh, I, I see other people have their hands up. Uh, some uh, want to come in, uh, raise their hands. I'll, I'll ask the co-host because I can't bring you up. Uh, if you can bring up the request, that'd be great. Uh, but uh, Nightlight, let me ask you this. Uh, a lot of people have been asking the question, why is Israel not handing Iron Dome over to uh, to Ukraine? Uh, it's an important question. Uh, maybe you could uh, shed some light on this uh, very specific capability that could help Ukrainians, but the Israelis aren't doing it for perhaps some good reasons. Um, Iron Dome... It's it's a really it's a really cool system, but you know Iron Dome or thing like CRAM, which is basically a phalanx on a truck. You know that's more for artillery shells. You know it's more for small tactical rockets. You know like for shooting down things like um, oh I don't know like a Smerch or something like that. You know it, it it's great for that. You know you might have like forty tubes and they can integrate. Yeah, it's great, but it's not something that's going to really be hitting a cruise missile because a cruise missile might be on an unpredictable path and has a very, you know, because they're small missiles, a small engagement window. So I I don't think it's really useful. I think it would be overwhelmed with a volume of artillery, and it's not really there to protect something like a city. It's not really there to defend against aircraft. It can in a pinch, don't get me wrong, but it's not ideal for that. So I don't think it would really be, be worth it. There's some other higher tier things in the Israeli, you know, integrated air defense system that are quite nice are just as good or better than patriot but i don't think ukraine will ever get access to that iron dome it'd be great to have it i mean the u.s paid for developing it basically i mean raytheon but uh, i don't see it as particularly useful uh just because it just so overwhelming because there's so much artillery on the battlefield you know um gepard we were talking about real quick on that it doesn't have any missiles. It does have like a 35 millimeter cannon. It would be great against drones if it can see them because the you know, problem with a drone is it has low radar signature. How are you going to see it? You know, it's not putting down any heat. How are you going to put a uh, infrared missile on it? Right. But if you have a nice big gun that fires a lot and you can just visually put a crosshair on it, you can blast that out of the sky, but it only goes up to like 13 to 15,000 feet if it's like right over your head. So it's great. I think it'd be more useful against helicopters, but um, it'd be a great system against drones, too, if they get close enough. And something like that should be riding shotgun around like HIMARS or some of the self-propelled artillery. So, yeah. Misfit, I could, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Knight, I, I could listen to you talk about air defense zones all day long. Uh, well done, my friend. Well done. Uh, all right. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to go to uh, Herm and then we're going to go to Misfit. And then um, we're going to go after that to BBSZ, a person with 30 followers and a lot of Internet uh, scams and memes in their history. So we're going to have a good conversation with you, BBSZ. But uh, first, we're going to go to uh, uh Hold on, let me get my order here. Uh, yep, we're going Herm and then Misfit and then to our new friend. Uh, to the um, Iron Dome uh, system. So the, uh, the Iron Dome is fantastic uh, in terms of defense. And some people mix up the entire um, air defense network that Israel is building with the Iron Dome. But the Iron Dome that uh, specifically was addressed before is more like the inner defense from um, mortar rounds to um, smaller types of rockets uh, and not those, those scud attacks that the 
um, Patriot system was taken down in the first um, Gulf War. Um, but they, they have it all in place uh, in Israel. And the, the thing is, a p Iron Dome is more like a point defense type of system for very specific uh, location, which makes sense in Israel, which is really small and uh, has a very narrow um, uh, range of territory they really need to protect. So, so that makes sense for them. In Ukraine, we're talking about um, thousands of kilometers and uh, tens of thousands of square kilometers of area that needs to protect it, and the Iron Dome simply wouldn't perform that well there. I don't really imagine the Ukrainians actually asking for that system. Um, yeah, please correct me on that one. I, I just I haven't seen an ask from Ukraine directly to to get the Iron Dome on site. So protecting Kiev would be good, but uh, for more than that, uh, it, it would be not really. Uh, the, the most economic way to to secure the um, airspace, and and, if, and what has been sort of the, the gapard for my original question? Um, so yeah, I know the gapard is certainly limited to something like five kilometers range of their their um, twin thirty five millimeter cannons, but um, so. Can they go for the Orland tents that, that like those nasty little buggers that provide spotting information for the artillery? I mean, that's kind of the thing where they could actually make an impact, in in my opinion, um, based on that the, all those fixed wing and rotary wing aircraft that Russian can muster are kind of like denied already. So, so what would be the utility there? Um, maybe also in in the uh, regard of the. Um, alleged Iranian drones that are coming in. Would there be any good for those? Nightlight, do you want to take the question on the Gepards? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it would be very useful. Um, it's something they should have had a while ago. It, it blows my mind that they can't take a, you take something that's been retired and is just basically guns and ammo uh, that has taken so long to get to the front. But yeah, it would be great against oil intents. Those, they're not flying at 15,000 feet. You know, they're flying a lot lower because they're cheap-ass drones. You know, it'll be useful against the Iranian stuff because if nothing else, it eventually needs to come down low to hit whatever it's going to hit. And when you factor in, you know, radar-controlled, I mean, in the 1940s, the U.S. Navy used to be able to throw a five-inch uh, shell into the face of a zero and not even know it was coming. So, you know, this is 40 or 50 years of extra technology on top of that. And then bolted on new software of that. So, yeah, it would it would just reap those things. Uh, it would be very useful for that. There should be, there should be one, you know, all over the place. Plus it's great for direct fire too, because, you know, it has big 35 millimeter cannons, which would be great for shredding infantry and bimps and that kind of thing. So yeah, it would, uh, it would really help Orland 10 threat. Uh, it's something that needed to be there uh, a long time ago. The, what you call it? The star streaks are also good. Uh, but I definitely want this in. It's on a chassis of a Leopard 1, so it has some armor. It has some protection. It can survive a hostile environment. So it's a really great system. It's a shame it hasn't been there sooner. But guns versus drones are really going to be something we have to go back to because you can't target the buggers. There's no radar cross-section. There's no heat. So you either put a laser-guided missile on it, like a Star Streak, or you hit it with a gun. Oh, yeah, and they're proximity fuse, too, which is nice. So it's a, I think... The, when it goes out the barrel, it can actually tell it when the shell is supposed to explode, too, or some sort of program, and I'm a little rusty on that part of it. But, yeah, it's a fantastic system. They need to be out there. 
And frankly, we need to be building things like that. The Germans actually have a much better system. They replaced the Gepard with, which is called Weasel, uh, which is kind of a light tank chassis. It's, that's a great system. That would be fantastic to have as well. I don't think Germany is going to send that, but that would be nice to have too. Uh, but no, the Germans not going to send anything useful. Um, but uh, you said something that the radar cross-section of the drones is too small. Um, so the um, uh, reconnaissance uh, ability of the Gepard with the spotting uh, on the tracking radar, uh, uh, would it be able to actually pick out an all-in-ten fire on it, or would it have to rely on somebody else spotting the drone for it to do the firing? Uh, yes, it could. Uh, it would be hard because, I mean, they're very small. I mean, a problem with, like, pulse Doppler radar on something like a, you know, like an AWACS or some of these phase arrays where it's so sensitive, you know, they're fly, you know, they can pick up, like, clocks of birds or clouds of bugs and you have to filter out things. It, it sees everything, so you have to set up filters. So things that are going really slow have a little cross-section, you know, a lot of times stuff, this stuff gets filtered out. So if you're wondering, like, how are the Iranians hitting things? How are, you know, how are these drones getting through? Um, it's because a lot of times these, uh, or frank, frankly, why the uh, MLRS rounds are getting through is because the filters aren't seeing things that are out there. Because otherwise, you know, the whole screen would be clouded with, you know, birds and leaves and rain and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it can see them. Um, unfortunately, I think you're probably going to be better off using visual on them. But it does have a good radar. It's just a little old. But uh, it's also monitoring a very small airspace. So, yeah, maybe. Uh, bigger drones, um, almost certainly, and you know, you still have guys with um, you know night vision goggles and stuff out there. Or you can do, you know, just take an infrared system. You might pick up some. I don't know the infrared output of an Orlin Ten, but I mean, frankly, these things can just turn off an engine and glide. So I don't think there's much heat uh, radar iffy. I mean, it, it's like a, a small radar, you know, radio controlled plane. You know, they're they're really tough like that, um, but it'd still be useful. Um, They'd pick them up if it got close enough and they're paying attention. Okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, Miss. Uh, so let's do this. Let's go to uh, Misfit and then uh, we'll go to BBSZ. Uh, and then uh, I see finance is back. Uh, uh, I want to hear what BBSZ has to say, frankly, but Misfit, you're up next. Thank you, Peter. Um, yeah, I want, well, we have some knowledgeable people in the space. I wanted to get this one in there. Um, we've seen, the Ukrainians have been able to, um, how important might it be for Ukraine to make a concerted effort, particularly once they have more launchers, uh, to continue to degrade um, the Russian air defense systems? And what, you know, what, what might that open up? for the Ukrainians moving forward if they're able to do that successfully. Oh, wait, and I have a follow-up to that. Um, is there any, do you think there's any chance that the Russians will be able to adapt their S3 or S400 systems to intercept HIMARS um, through any type of changes they could do, firmware, software, that sort of thing? Um, or is it back to the drawing board with that? Thanks. I like, do you want to uh, round that one up? Uh, sure. Um, so really the, the best defense against S300 and S400 uh, is really the curvature of the earth in a lot of ways, right? So 
if they have big honky ranges, two, 300 kilometers, but they're limited by the curvature of Europe, so way to avoid them really ultimately is to fly, fly low, right? Food, you have no energy, you're kind of a sitting duck. So getting rid of those things would make life a hell of a lot easier for the Ukrainian Air Force. And, you know, the current and future parts of it would make a big difference. Center. So it'd be, it'd be very helpful to get rid of them because then it would give at least the medium, um, medium altitude back. And that would also mean they're safer from things like, you know, Sergei with his man pads or, you know, the um, pantsiers and uh, tungsten or whatever it is. You know, they have a lot, they have a lot of guns. Let me put it that way. So it'd be nice to get out of the low altitude. Uh, I don't think they're going to be able to do anything about the, um, you know, the guided MLRS rounds uh, for a while, because I mean, partly it's a filter thing to react quickly to because they come in so damn fast. And they come in a cloud of usually like other MLR, MLRS rounds are shot off from like older Russian systems. So they need to play with filters. They need to do some software updates. It takes months to do software updates. You know, you, you can't just do that. And then you have to take systems offline while you do software patches. And if anyone's ever tried to, up, you know, update Windows, sometimes it doesn't work. So they're stuck with the problem. There's no getting around it. And... Well, I mean, eventually, you know, they, they're going to take these things out with attackums. They're going to take them out with uh, GMRS, GIMRs there, and that'll be a great thing. Um, uh, I think, did I cover everything there? That was fantastic. Uh, uh, Nightlife, I just want to say thank you. Uh, Misfit, any follow-up or we'll go on? Nope, I, I know you're anxious to hear what BBSZ has to say, so uh, let's roll. We have the space to uh, share accurate information. BBSC, uh, you're up. Hey, good morning. Uh, can you hear me all right? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, thank you for degrading me based on my um, Twitter uh, follower account and the Twitter uh, history. But let me tell you, I'm a long-time listener, and I'm also donating $100 every month to Miriade. So thank you very much for the degradation. And uh, Peter, I have actually a question for you. A few days ago, you mentioned that you have a couple of politician friends that were scheduled to come to Hungary to persuade our government to finally, in 100 years, get them to the right side of history. And I had a question if you had any follow-up on that. Thank you. I'm sorry, clarify your question. A few days ago, uh, you mentioned on this space that you had a few politician friends, I believe the Conservative Party delegation that was scheduled to meet uh, Hungarian government to you know, persuade them to get onto the right side of history. I remember that correctly, or was I completely misunderstanding something? Okay, so what's the question? If you had anything to follow, like any other information, because here in the Hungarian news, nothing of that here. Okay, yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, thank you very much for supporting the space, uh, for supporting Maria Aid. I really appreciate that. Uh, this is a righteous cause. Uh, when it comes to Hungary, uh, let me say this. Uh, Hungary has a choice right now. Uh, Hungary's choice is what civilization does Hungary want to be a part of? Uh, does it want to be a part of uh, our Western civilization or does it want to be par a part of the Eastern kleptocratic, corrupt genocidal civilization that Vladimir Putin is offering. Uh, this is Hungary's choice. Right now, through their policy decisions, the Hungarian government is making the wrong choice. It's choosing to be on the wrong side of this divide. Uh, 
that's bad. We want Hungary to be part of our Western civilization, uh, part of our alliance that we've built up over generations. Now, uh, when Americans travel to Hungary, I, I certainly hope that uh, they recognize the good things that Hungary is doing on this point or that point. But I also hope that they recognize the bad decisions that the current government is making in the following ways, supporting Russia's energy war against Ukraine. Every euro, that every dollar that Hungary sends back to Moscow helps Vladimir Putin commit his war against Ukraine. It helps Vladimir Putin sustain his war uh, against Ukraine. That's wrong. And uh, that is a discussion that's happening right now in Hungary. And I think the Hungarians should have a say in this. I think they should actually say, no, this is wrong. Right now, the Hungarian government is, is doing the opposite. And uh, we're going to watch how that plays out. <clears throat> I completely agree. And I would also like them to make the right choice. But really, was my question was regarding that delegation that was you know, sent here to persuade them to do the right thing. But if there is no concrete information, then I will wait and see. Thank you. Well, BBSZ, let me do this. Uh, once uh, I, I get a readout from uh, the folks who are there right now in Hungary, I'm, I'll be happy to share with the space uh, uh, my interpretation of their thoughts and reflections. How's that? Is that fair? Fair enough. Thank you. Thank you, BBSZ. Moving on. Night, Nightlight, you were back up, sir. Nightlight? Mic check. You good, fans. Oh, we lost Nightlight. That explains things. <coughs> <coughs> Peter, um, well, we, we have you. Always appreciate having you in the space and appreciate your, your great article the other uh, the other month in British News. Do we have any new, uh, new writings coming down the pike from you that we have to look forward to? Finance. I just started a Substack. Uh, I'm going to be announcing it shortly. Uh, if I may, though, it's very late here. Um, I'm going to hand the mic over to you. And... Uh, you we're in good hands with you, my friend, if I can say that. Thank you, Peter. I'm currently sitting in central time, so I have a, an hour time advantage on you. So uh, I wish you wish you the best. Sleep well, sir. Thank you very much for joining us here at uh, the Maria Report. You're supporting Maria Aid, uh, a nonprofit charity that gives all of its donations straight to Ukraine. The board of Maria Aid uh, spends their own money to make sure the logistics side happens so that nobody is taking a paycheck. Everybody is doing their best to donate. Uh, you can click right there on the host account of Maria Report and find a nice link to the Maria Aid website and donate some money if you have a little extra to spare. That will go to fun, useful things for Ukrainians like earmuffs, I mean ear defenders for battle moose. And uh, those will help the Ukrainian artillerymen not go deaf or have tinnitus because they're going to defend their country no matter what. But it'd be really nice if they didn't have to go deaf later in life because they did that. Uh, they also provide things like tourniquets, and one tourniquet can save a life. So that is the good news on the situation. I'll welcome back up Nightlight. And I see your hand is raised, sir. Hey, thank you very much. Yeah, as soon as I came on, very the system dropped on me. I don't know what was up there. More Twitter fun. Um, I don't know. I just sent him on a roll on the, the air defense thing. You know, in terms of, like, why does it matter as much with a Western, you know, like the F-16s or F-15s or whatever come, come along? You know, it's not just throwing in more airplanes. It's not just being able to beat back, um, you know, Russian airplanes. Although there's an interesting incident uh, a few years ago when uh, uh, Indian SU-30s decided to play around with the Pakistanis in a few um, 
Pakistani F-16s of old uh, old F-16s of old uh, AMRAMs, advanced medium range air to air missiles, uh, were able to see them off. I think they got a couple kills. So the Russian Air Force isn't really anything to be afraid of. They're capable if they're trained. But another nice thing that it brings to the table is they're able to bring something called uh, the harm or uh, basically an, an advanced extended range harm, right? So these things have a range not as good as, uh, not as long as a, like an S-300, but they're coming in from a lower altitude and, you know, they won't necessarily see them. So if a radar is up, it's an anti-radiation missile and they shoot it, it follows the radar, it kills the radar. You kill the radar, you just knocked out, you know, probably like, eight target erector launchers carrying four missiles apiece makes the whole damn thing blind and they don't do cooperative engagement. So that's it for the battery. Uh, during the, it was, I think it was the Gulf war. Maybe it was the second Gulf war. I, either way, I'm sure it applied to both. When you shoot a harm, uh, high speed anti-radiation missile, usually the call over the radio is Magnum. Yeah. You know, Magnum PI. Right. And as soon as they'd hear that, they turn off the radar. So they didn't want the missile to follow the radar back to, you know, where the radar was. So that means they're blind and your other airplanes can come through. So either you blow up the radar or it turns off, either way, you're good. Now, the nasty thing about these buggers is it actually can remember where the radar is. So even if you turn off the radar, if it got a good enough look, it'll still hit you anyways. And it's not like any of these things are mobile. So if that's a real game changer, that when that gets into the theater, that's probably the most exciting capability because then that opens up. If you get rid of your S 300s and S 400s, you know, the Kirch bridge is screwed. You know, then that's where you come in with something with a 2000 pound uh, bunker busters and you just blow the snot out of that. Uh, during the Vietnam war, it took us six or seven years to take down like one strategic bridge, which was much smaller than this one uh, because they didn't have laser guided bombs. Soon as they got them within a couple of sorties, they dropped the thing. So it's not attackums which is going to take that out. It's going to be two thousand pound bomb which are going to take that thing out because I, I'm not convinced something like an attackums has the punch to do it because it's only a five hundred pound warhead. You know, going against effectively a mountain of cement. But you know, one capability enables another, enables another. Um, another thing, rocket following a ballistic arc. You know, it can maneuver a little bit. So if you're trying to track where your rockets come from, you know, a computer will basically figure, okay, it uh, it originated from here, or I, I see it here, I follow the path, so then I can work backwards and tell you where it came from. You can't do that with a guided MRS, and that's why. And I'm probably going to be heading out soon because it's uh, Eastern Standard Time. It's 2 a.m. I just happen to have insomnia. Hey, Nightlight, do you mind if I ask you maybe one question about uh, air defense uh, before you take off? Sure. Yeah, if so I guess... With the host. Um, so I guess Russia has these command vehicles that sort of integrate their air defense. Ukraine doesn't. I'm assuming other countries don't. So I'm just wondering, like, what what is it and why is it so special? Why does it make Russia's uh, air defense more integrated? What capabilities does it give them that other countries that use S-300 but don't have this command vehicle ha uh, uh, have? Thanks. Well, every sand battery is going to have a command vehicle because, I mean, you have a radar which feeds, um, you know, feeds in the data. You have a sensor data and, you know, a Ramsher may allow them to do some sensor fusion from other areas, but like with everything with Russian, it's not nearly as good as advertised. 
the biggest advantage Russian S300s have over other people's or 400s or the 500 coming in, which that's a scary piece of kit. That thing can shoot down a satellite. Um, is that they've been working on it an extra 30 years. You know, what you see, the 